I was so afraid of getting stuck. And I was so afraid to even like tell people I had this diagnosis because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as like, oh, she has MS. So I was really swinging. I went to one extreme. And I think what I learned over time is like, this is not a path forward either. So it has to be some sort of middle ground, as you say. And for me, that the key word there is integration. Like we have to find a way to integrate this into our identity so that it becomes part of us, not all of us. Hey friends, it's your host, Lisa Kiefhofer here. Just in case you're new to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. It's a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, well, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet what I discovered is individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. Have you ever devoured a book in a day? Well, that's exactly what I did with The Healing Power of Storytelling, an incredibly profound book written by today's guest, Annie Brewster. Annie is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, a practicing physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, a writer and a storyteller. She's also a patient diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2001. In today's conversation, We explore the grief involved in a diagnosis, the lessons she's learned about the healing power of narratives, the elements of storytelling that can help bring improved outcomes to our physical, psychological, and emotional well-being, and well, so much more. I can't wait for you to meet her. Annie Brewster, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. The folks who've been listening to the show or following me on social media know I've been posting about your book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, sort of ad nauseum recently. So I know they're just as excited as I am to have you join me today. So thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I'm really happy to be here. And I love learning about your podcast and I like the name so much. (laughs) Yeah, it has definitely struck a chord with a few people who said, "Mm, (laughs) yes, Exactly. That's exactly it. But part of what I'm doing this podcast for, and I think I'm so resonant with your work in storytelling, is I'm trying to make it less sneaky. I think the reason that it can feel so sneaky for us, besides just some of the normative reasons, you know, different triggers or events that happen that remind us, because we're so grief illiterate sort of as a culture. So my hope is with every conversation I have on this show, including the one we're going to have today, is that I just help make grief feel a little less sneaky for all of us. And boy, do we need that. I fully agree. So we'll start today where I start all of my conversations, and that's just inviting you to share with us a little bit your earliest memory of grief. It doesn't have to be a death loss. Of course, we grieve even non-death losses. And I'm really always curious to have people think about what grief beliefs they learned by the ways in which particularly the adults in their life sort of explicitly or implicitly modeled grief. And can you think about something that comes to mind for you? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is 
It's a little bit of a, I'll try and keep it really brief, but a story from when I was nine years old. And I do think it's the first time I felt grief. My parents were going through a really rocky time, fighting a lot. We're going through, well, soon a divorce would come, but I don't know that they have talked about that. My dad was having extramarital affairs. He worked at the hospital down the street, which funny enough, is the hospital that I work in now. And my mom said, come on, kids, we're going down there because she wanted to confront him on something that she had found out about some affair he was having. So we marched down there. I was nine. My sister was 11. My brother was six, I guess, five or six. And it was a winter day. And then we go into his office. We're sitting there. They have a big fight. My mom threw a plant at his head. You know, it's traumatic, right? And then we go, this is probably too traumatic. Anyway, then we march out and she's upset. She was very upset, legitimately so, right? And marches us out and she um, opened the glass door of the office building hard, and slammed it against the wall, accidentally swung it too hard. It shattered. I started to cry. I was sobbing. I ran out into the street right outside the office building and like crumpled down into a little ball of crying. And then everyone thought I had run through the door. So all the doctors that came out of their offices and all the nurses that worked there came around. Everyone surrounded me and was like, are you okay? And I was just so traumatized. And that felt, that is the first time I think I really felt grief. And it was all mixed up, of course, with shame and with just, I don't know, I just felt like I wanted to crawl into that little ball and disappear. And so that was, that was a moment that really stuck out. And then we went home and I remember later that night talking about it with my parents and I was feeling like we have to move. I can't be like the shame is just overbearing and It did get brushed under, but I do remember my mom saying, like, we're not moving, we're carrying on, we're going forward. So there was, in some ways, a message of, like, we're not going to hide. But on the other hand, we never talked about it again. I have never talked about it with my siblings. I have talked about it once with my mom because I wrote a little piece about this once, but she didn't really want to talk about it. So anyway, I guess one of the messages is, like, we just don't touch this. But that was just, just a, I think, a very vulnerable moment where I really felt grief. It seemed like a turning point. I don't know exactly in what way, but re- I don't know. Yeah. So that was it. Interesting. And was and so, you know, one of the things, there's kind of layers maybe of the grief, of course, the grief eventually of, you know, parents divorcing maybe and kind of that loss, but also just kind of just being a witness and experiencing that sort of intense, as you said, traumatic moment. Encounter exchange. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I'm particularly curious for you to think about, um, for those of you, I mean, you all heard in the intro that Annie is also a doctor. And so as I'm, I'm always curious when I'm ever, I'm interviewing anybody who's gone through any kind of helping profession training, whether it's social workers or psychologists or physicians, as you went through medical school, which we're going to talk a little bit about your own experiences both as physician, but also patient here in a little bit, but just to tie this grief belief uh, theme for just a minute, when you started entering in medical school, was grief even a conversation, a topic that you expected to encounter as you studied medicine? Was it something that was covered as you were studying medicine? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think I would have I don't know if expected is the right word because I knew the system for what it was, but I would have hoped that it would have been a part of it because there is so much grief in health and healing and 
navigating with people through these experiences. I do think by the time I went to medical school, which was 1997, so it was a long time ago now, but they had come a long way already in in some ways. And for instance, I remember in the cadaver lab, they had instituted, you know, we do dissection of deceased individuals and and that um, is often or over the historically had not really been acknowledged as, you know, that these are they're covered up a lot of times while you're working on different parts of their bodies. Yeah. And then when you see their their heads and their faces and it's it's very intimate. Right. And yeah. anyway, they had instituted a ceremony at the end of that dissection to honor those lives, to thank them. Is that grief? I don't know, but it's an acknowledgement of the loss. The loss, yeah, for uh, sure. And the humanity of these people that are there for our learning. But I think overall, grief really is not addressed enough in medical training. Yeah, yeah. I've certainly had different physicians on over... Over the time of the show, and I have the honor of sometimes going in and talking with residents and folks in the in that field, and I do see some more interest, I think, especially in the times that we're living now, but um, certainly it's one of the many systems, just like our broader culture, where I think grief is, you know, swept under the rug because it's uncomfortable. So Yeah, and I do think there is still very much a clear bias in medicine or I should say taboo in medicine to really like feel too deeply as the provider. Yes, There's sort of exactly. the message you get is you're gonna your judgment's gonna be clouded, you're not it's gonna be professional. Yeah, it's unprofessional, yeah. you're not gonna be able to make clear decisions, boundaries, yeah. boundaries, boundaries. And of course, boundaries have their place, but I think it goes too far. It does. And certainly, and that happens in lots of fields. I've I've had fellow social workers on the show, and that's kind of the same ethos, of course, in our training in the field. I even had a research scientist out of northern Canada who's studying the climate crisis and ecological grief and says the same thing about even sort of the scientific community about you know, expressing their grief over the losses that they're witnessing because it's sort of deemed unprofessional. So I think it permeates lots of different systems and cultures, not just, you know, kind of the medical culture. Yeah. yeah. And there's no, there's no space for it. You know, there's yeah. no sort of, uh, we don't create space for it. No. Well, we don't create space for anything that is a pause, you know, and that True. doesn't have kind of productivity and efficiency. So I'm so really interested, uh, as I said, I'll probably be reading back to you, if you don't mind, from your book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss. I devoured this book in a day and then have gone back and reread it, and nobody can borrow my copy because it's highlighted and sticky noted, and so I've bought copies for other people. But one of the things that I really appreciated is the way in which you started with your own story and how you even came upon this sort of understanding about the power, the healing power of storytelling and all the learning that you've done. And then, of course, the incredible projects that you've created, which I can't wait to share. But maybe for the listeners who haven't read the book or don't know your story, I'd love to invite you to sort of start with your own journey to sort of becoming a doctor happening alongside of you receiving this life-changing diagnosis. And, you know, to any level of detail you want to share, but thinking particularly around any of your own ambiguous loss or grief as you kind of began to reckon with this news of your diagnosis as you're also trying to show up in the world to become a doctor. 
Yeah, I like the framing of grief in this respect. I've often talked about it as sort of my work with storytelling and health and Health Story Collaborative, the nonprofit that came out of it. I've said it comes out of a yearning that I've had, but I think it also has come out of a grief. So like on the doctor side, I'll say, you know, these were happening sort of simultaneously, the doctor part and the patient part, but on sort of two separate tracks. And I didn't integrate them together until later. And I was trying to navigate them both. But on the journey to becoming a physician, I think I did experience grief because I do feel you go into it with certain hopes and goals and wide-eyed and, you know, excited. And then the system does sort of funnel you down. And I started to feel that even in medical school, like I went in with so many broad interests and then you kind of get narrowed, narrowed, narrowed in part because you're, you have to learn a new language and all of that. Um, But then, um, you know, I chose primary care. I actually did two years of psychiatry first. But I was really drawn by the promise of connection with people, really, and the stories of people's lives is what interested me most. And I really, you know, fantasized about knowing my patients well and being able to really be there with them in these intimate moments. And primary care, which I ended up in after I graduated residency, uh, really did break my heart in a way because it was so, so hard to show up the way that I wanted to. Uh, and because I was paid on productivity and because the system was run like a business more and it was not focused on relationships. And, you know, I literally was penalized if patients didn't show up in my schedule, you know, so it was about numbers. It was about billing and it was too time crunched. You know, I worked in a women's health center and we were supposed to, we had like 20 minute appointments and that included the full physicals where you're supposed to be doing a pap smear, talking about diabetes, talking about high blood pressure, talking about depression, you know. And then of course, because it's human nature, people wait till the last minute sometimes to bring up what's most difficult when they're on the way out the door. And then they say something really vulnerable and you want to be there, but you're having this internal war with yourself. Like I have a patient waiting, I'm running behind. Meanwhile, I have like, a you know, young kids at home, you know, so those tensions were really hard. And I felt it was really challenging to be in those in the moment with my patients. And I don't know that they always picked up on that, but it was like an internal struggle. And I would say, the system was almost like pitting us against each other. Like the patients felt disappointed. They weren't getting what they wanted from healthcare overall, listened to, seen, heard, and they're vulnerable, right? And the doctors are feeling really time crunched. And so I felt grief, like this is so broken and I am not being with people the way that I want to be. And I don't have time to hear their stories. So that's when I first started to think about this work. And I think it came from a sense of sadness, really. Yeah, I just want to pause and just kind of like, pivot out to the audience who's listening just as a reminder. I try to bring this thread throughout all the conversations that I have. We can have grief, you know, when we have our own diagnosis and illness, which you're going to talk about, I think, in a little bit. We, of course, have grief. We obvious, you know, if we experience a death loss, you know, or the end of a relationship in our life. But we can also experience grief when we have a story of what something is going to be. And we are, we're going to talk today about how we're just innately storytelling creatures. And you had built, you know, this story about you being able to have a vocation that allowed you to live out your values and your principles of connecting and being. And then as you navigated through the system, recognizing that that story was actually not possible in that setting anyways. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that grief and not just try to buck up and dust it off and to just honor that for a little, for a time. Absolutely. And it's a loss and it's like hard to get out once you put in like 
however many number of years of medical right. training, right? You just want to like, keep, keep it going. Oh. Yeah. But it was really, it was like damaging my soul. I, I, I know that sounds really dramatic, but it was hard. No, so that I was happening that. on the one hand. And then certainly my own medical diagnosis was one of grief, but that was sort of a stuttering course. You know, I, so um, when I was in my internship year of my residency, so it was actually before I went out into primary care as a practicing attending physician, but I was already experiencing some of the shortcomings of the system. But during that time, I was, of course, overworked, didn't have enough time, was actually going through a divorce, had a two-year-old, I had a lot going on. And that's when I first developed my beginning symptoms of MS, which were mild at first, but then got worse until I ended up going to my primary care doctor. Long and the short of it is I ended up with a neurologist, had one lesion on my spinal cord, was told that I had MS almost certainly and should go on medication. And what I have seen- In an incredibly dismissive manner, correct? Oh, yes. Very, very. You know, it was like, I I was really- you know, I, I was with him for like five minutes and, you know, it was too definitive. I mean, he was right in the end, but like I needed a little time to adjust and I, it was so abrupt and, and I was so not in a place to hear that. And I just didn't feel like there was any of the holding of like, what's important to you in your life? Who are you before we just dump this bomb on you? But that's healthcare sometimes. Anyway, so did I feel grief in that moment? Yes, in a way, but I also like shoved it way under the rug and went way deep into denial, which can be adaptive for a short time sometimes, but I kind of got stuck there. But very gradually, I came to terms with it, but it did take me a long time. And that was a process of grieving. Yeah. I mean, again, that's sort of not just, I mean, it sounds like your symptoms have, you know, changed and shifted over time. So it's not even necessarily different abilities that maybe are harder or get lost, but also, again, that sort of story of like, I'm going to be a, you know, quote unquote, fully health, the story of me, fully healthy human being, being a doctor. So these stories that are being shifted, which by the way, all of our stories are always constantly being iterated and, and reiterated all the time. 100%. Yeah, but those were, those were, those were two main identity stories happening at the same time that were also kind of, I don't know, be careful of my words, crumbling at the same time? Totally or? crumbling. I mean, especially the identity piece as a physician. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm sorry, as a patient more, but yes, yeah. as a physician too. But really for me, the getting this diagnosis of a disease with no cure went against everything I believed about myself to that point in time of like, I can like persevere and persist my way through anything and get through it. Put my head down, brute force, I can beat it. And then this just really hit me over the head. And I, I really had a hard time grappling with that. And I think that is a longer way to bringing me to stories, yeah. which I can yeah. get into in, if you want, but I don't want to yeah. go on for too long. No, <laughs> no, I do. Yeah. I mean, you were kind of talking just there about that kind of getting stuck or unstuck from those kind of singular thin description stories, like patient story or doctor story. I do want to get into that. And there's a, you have a great passage in your book about getting unstuck in that identity. I'd love to read that to you and share it with our listeners if I can. And then maybe just for those who are less versed in kind of narrative identity and narrative psychology, even after that, maybe just kind of give us a, a framework or a groundwork to the work that you learned, Jonathan Adler and others. Yeah. But you said something that I think many people who listen to the show who either have personally experienced, you know, chronic illness or a diagnosis, or I've had even guests who've had catastrophic injuries on the show can relate to you. You shared, as a doctor, I do occasionally see patients who appear stuck in this way. They lose themselves 
within their diagnosis or define themselves as patients above all else, with symptoms and medical appointments dictating the structure of their lives. This can happen even when the acuity of the medical situation does not demand such vigilance. My initial response, on the other hand, was to deny my illness completely, but this proved to be just another way to get stuck. Either extreme, living in complete denial or identifying solely as a sick person makes healing nearly impossible. Yeah, I do think I believe that. Yeah, and you went on to talk about, you know, which we're going to talk about now, kind of the act of storytelling, hearing from others. So both storytelling as a teller and a listener can help us move to some middle space that feels less stuck. How did you stumble upon the sort of science of stories and narrative psychology? Was that kind of personally motivated, professionally motivated, both? Yeah. So, well, more personal, I'd say. Um, So, you know, the the quote you just read really resonates with me. And I think I went so far to denial because I was so afraid of getting stuck. And I was so afraid to even like tell people I had this diagnosis because I didn't want to be pigeonholed as like, oh, she she has You didn't want them to stick you into that identity too. Yeah. Right. So I was really... Really swinging, like I went to one extreme, and I think what I learned over time is like this is not a path forward either. So it has to be some sort of middle ground, as you say. And for me, that the key word there is integration. Like we have to find a way to integrate this into our identity so that it becomes part of us, not all of us. Which is um, exactly how I think about grief. That we're yeah. not getting rid of it, but we are, we can't have it be in control, and we have to integrate it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it, there are terrible parts about it, of course, but there are also things that we learn that make us more empathic or see things in a deeper way. Not that we would invite it, but so it's, you know, it's like, I don't ever want to sound like I'm like trying to be all like silver lining. Yeah. Toxic positivity. There are, you have to feel the hard, but you also like, then what's the alternative? Like, how are we going to find the strengths in this? Cause anyway, so for me, it was like really thinking about that integration piece. And so slowly but surely, I started to tell my story out loud and that helped me to integrate it. You know, I did it in low stakes ways initially, just with people I didn't know or would never see again. And then kind of like, because I'm sort of a leaper sometimes, I had, I wrote about it for the first time and then it like went out there and sort of went on the radio and everyone heard it all at once. But there was something really empowering about that, that, you know, it was a gradual stepwise process for me, but sort of stepping into it fully, putting it out there, sharing my story helped me to integrate it and to actually feel like I, this is me to, you know, take it or leave it. And that was really empowering. It took me a long time to get there. And it was about coming, telling my story. Um, and that took time to, but I did it and that felt good. And at the same time thinking, how can I help? other people like me, like I wanted to really hear stories of other people living with chronic illness or terminal illness or just diseases that they had to live with going forward, or even an acute illness. I wanted to hear how would people integrated these experiences. I wanted to learn their stories, not all like everything's glorious and I was cured. No, it was hard. And yet here's my path forward. What what are the possibilities? I wanted to hear those stories and I couldn't find that many. I didn't feel ready to go to a support group. So that's when I started thinking, I'm going to start collecting patient stories and I'm going to use this to help other people who are getting a new diagnosis and trying to make sense of it. And so I started collecting stories in 2010 and I just like bought recording equipment. I had a radio person come train me and I just started doing it. And it was, you know, not till three years later that we formally became a nonprofit in 2013, but but I started the work in 2010. And so I 
actually started engaging with other people's stories through collecting them and making a library of stories for others to listen to. But what I realized in doing that work was that there was this profound experience with the person who was the storyteller and working with them to to really um, focus on their story and edit it and craft it and then share it and be witnessed in the sharing. There was something really powerful about that. So I started doing this. And so at first for me, it was really much intuitive and experiential. And I just knew like, yeah, this is this is healing. How could it not be? Then it was secondarily that I met Jonathan Adler, who's my research colleague, the chief academic officer of Health Story Collaborative, a, ne- a psychologist in the field of narrative psychology. And he's been amazing. So he he actually came in after I'd started it, but gave me a lot of the science that really explained it um, underneath. And so he's been my teacher in that. That's amazing. Yeah. When we come back... Annie begins to explore narrative identity and the components of storytelling that can improve our chances of having healing outcomes. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast with my guest, Annie Brewster. Hey there, don't forget, if you want to keep up with the latest on the show, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast platform. If you want some behind-the-scenes news, the latest on my work with individuals and companies, the scoop on the book I'm writing, same name as the show, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and more, visit lisakiefover.com. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. And while you're there, sign up for my not-so-regular newsletter. Why not-so-regular? Well, because grief isn't on a schedule, and neither is this newsletter. You do such a lovely job in the book, sort of really outlining sort of simply and just in ways that I think all of us can understand, even those of us who aren't, you know, narrative and story junkies like I am, kind of what is the science even behind storytelling has been proven to improve mental health and mental well-being. And I just love that you do that. You just started to allude to kind of having people tell their story and kind of write and rewrite. And I think that's so important. Uh, And I'd love to kind of get into the, you kind of talk in the book about five kind of key things that you're looking for in storytelling, the kinds of storytelling that has a healing or improved, um, offers improvement. And that isn't to say just kind of, again, a pause to the audience that you're just making up stuff or just, you know, washing over the hard stuff. Absolutely not. We know from this work, from other research and work around grief, that meaning making as a kind of process is part of how we integrate grief and loss or identity shifts in this case. But you talked about some of the key components, which I think is, you know, based on the research, agency, communion, redemption, accommodative processing, coherence. Did you have gut instincts that those were key qualities? Was that from the research? And maybe even can just touch on how would you define each of those for, sure, for folks? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So that's really from the research. And so John Adler taught me a lot of that, of sort of the health benefits of engaging with our personal stories. I think the like the, the, the foundation of that is this concept of narrative identity, this sort of the belief that who we are 
is shaped by the stories we tell about ourselves. All right. Um, and the stories others tell about tell us. us about us. Uh, right. Yeah. And yeah. sort of, but then that always is shaping our own story of identity. Cyclical. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And, and that it's not so much sort of the events of our lives that matter, though, of course, those do matter. But it's what's more important is how we make sense of those events reflected in the stories we tell and that that shapes us. And so that concept really grabbed me at first. And also the in, the empowering piece to me is that we're not stuck, is that our stories can be continually constructed and reconstructed. And there's some stability to them over, over time, of course, because it is the scaffolding of who we are, but we're not stuck in them. And we can always reinterpret and reshape and find different meanings. And that for me is freeing. So that's sort of the foundation. And then the second piece being that how we tell our stories matters when it comes to health, that not all stories do uh, as good a job as promoting psychological well-being. And that in the research, it turns out it's not the events that happen to us, but it's the themes that have been found to be associated with mental health. So in the research field, they'll look at narratives and the code for these different themes, higher level of certain themes, very much linked to mental health. So the themes you just listed are, the, there are many narrative themes, but these are the ones that we tend to focus on. Agency, that's sort of like the, mo- the, the feeling in control of our stories, that we're not just being batted around by fate, that we actually have um, you know, a say in what happens. More, more agency in our stories, improvements, positive mental health. The next is redemption. So that's when something sort of starts bad in a story and ends good, right? So that is a little bit of a cultural obsession in, in North America. We love redemptive stories. Yes, yes <laughs> we do. Not everything is redemptive, but I do believe there are always redemptive threats to be found, right? Right. So the, just to pause there and just to draw that out, like when somebody does die, obviously that's the bad end to the story. So it's not about necessarily having quote unquote good outcomes. It's finding threads or pieces. And that's that meaning making that makes us feel like we got to spend quality time or I got to say things or I got to show up in the world in a way that I wanted to. There are threads. It's not necessarily kind of the facts or the experience outcomes. Yes. And and also just to say that, you know, no story is going to be all redemptive, right? It's not black and white. All of these themes show up together, right? It's not like you have a story that's one of them. So you have some agency, you have some redemption, but the more we find that the opposite of redemption is contamination. And that's when things start good, turn bad. That's bad for our mental health. So the more sort of themes of contamination in the story, it's linked to worse mental health. And then coherence is really about just putting our story together in a way that makes sense. And that can be chronologically, that can mean just um, having it be believable, having it come together, taking all the little stories of our lives and putting them into a frame that feels coherent. That process is actually good for our mental health. So that's, and then accommodative processing, I think is a really important one because that's where the meaning making comes in. So the way John Adler talks about it is like when things happen to us, we can either process them through assimilative processing, meaning we just sort of assimilate them. They're little things. We fit them into our existing story or a bigger thing happens and we need to do accommodative processing. They're so big that we can't make sense of them in our existing stories. Our stories have to shift. We have to rejigger them a bit. We have to rewrite them in a way. And that's hard. And that requires we do that so that we can make meaning of them in our new, in our existing story. That's the hard work. That means touching the painful parts. And that means changing our stories. That is good for us, though. That's very good for us. So yeah. that, that and to communion. Me is, oh, and communion about community and the more themes of sort of connection with others also linked to positive mental health. 
Yeah. So we're always pulling for those themes. So John Adler and I, like one of the programs we put together is for these live storytelling events we have. And we work with people in preparation for them. And we go through many, many drafts um, and revisions. And we have a narrative guide that we guide people through. It's in the book. And we're always pulling for these themes. We're not necessarily saying, tell us more about agency, but we're asking questions that might probe for agency without even using that word, but sort of tell us what what did you feel you were able to control or what did you learn from that that you can tell someone else that might help them, you know, things like that. So we try and just probe and probe and bring people deeper in their stories and bring these themes out so that um, in a psychologically helpful way. I just love this so much. As I said, I studied narrative therapy and approaches 20-something years ago when I was in graduate school for social work. And this is the work, I wouldn't have labeled it in all of these, you know, this formal way that I've been doing every time I've worked with individuals or even organizations or communities to just really help us recognize the ways in which we just have millions of experiences. And it's the constant, I always do this sort of metaphor that our lives are like all the stars in the skies. We have millions of experiences and our identities are formed by the constellations we create. That's I like that. I've not, you know, and so we're always kind of, we know we to look up for the Big Dipper and the Orion's Belt and whatever. And if those constellations help us tell a story of hardship or suffering or lack of agency or lack of coherence, then that my invitation always to people is like what a, like asking probative questions and asking them to think about are there other stars in the sky are there other themes or other constellations we might draw that help you f- feel you know which can be equally as true i think we get really into these thin descriptions of our lives and especially when pain or hardship is crushing us, a diagnosis or a death loss, we kind of instinctively go to the thin description that, you know, it seems the most obvious, but actually has a non-healing or a kind of a stuck quality. So I really appreciate the way you just kind of frame that. And really this, this work that you're talking about is my grief metaphor, which is this is we are, the stories of our lives have become unraveled in the wake of loss and and the work of grief is to rewrite and relive into this emerging story of our lives. Yeah. Which parenthetical we're doing all the time, but it's just more profound when we have these, you know, moments in time of these losses. These these turning point moments that force us to sort of change our stories a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love the star metaphor. That's really good. The other thing I just want to say about coherence is like, to the point of not having it be like all silver linings and let's let it, it's not real. It has to be real, right? Because part of yeah. coherence is that it's believable, that it's psychologically relevant to our life. Yes. So we can't escape it and tell a story that has nothing to do with it. It can't be a fantastical or a fantasy story. However, I would say in the telling, having someone ask us probative or thoughtful questions in the retelling and the retelling, that's the place in which we're not necessarily going from like, you know, now all of a sudden we're believing we're aliens walking on another planet kind of story. But I do think the kind of generative interaction of storytelling and rewriting and being heard and reflected back to helps us start to see and believe in, as you said, in that coherence, a, a richer or a more full description of our story that we might not have come to had we not engaged in that process of storytelling. Absolutely. And I love how you brought up how we are also shaped by other people's stories. Cause I always, I like to think about storytelling as a relational act that, right. Absolutely. That we're in dialogue that I tell you my story, it's going to ch- maybe change your story just a little. And you're, the way you respond is going to change my story a little and so forth and so on and continuing on forever. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I know you, again, reference this in the book, I think probably comes from Jonathan Adler's work, but sort of we have our personal narratives and then the, our ability to change our personal narratives are definitely impacted by kind of what I think in psychology they call master narratives or what I'm always referring to in my work as kind of like our broader culture is that even when we try to kind of break out of our shells of the stories we tell ourselves, the shoulds of our cultural stories kind of weigh down on us. I'm always inviting people to look out for the shoulds of grief. And those master narratives are very subtle sometimes. They are like productivity and capitalism and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, and they're not necessarily anything that someone has said to us. They're just simply subtle little messages that then influence our own personal narratives, which is like, I'm just so lame and lazy, or I can't believe I'm still crying or whatever stories we tell ourselves because of that master narrative. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it can be, those can be shifted, but it's really hard to shift them. It's hard to even see them sometimes. It's true. Yes. But I also think the other point that's really important there is that uh, it's not, you know, as easy for some uh, as for others to just shift our stories, depending on the master narratives we live in and whether or not we conform to them. So for someone who just doesn't fit within a master narrative, it's harder to shape your story within that because you're just limited. Either you have to reject it or you have to conform to it in a way that doesn't feel honest. And and so we change those master narratives over time. I think one story at a time individually and then collectively we can move the needle. And I think that's social change. And that's that's how we do it with through stories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my motto for this show is changing the narratives of grief one conversation at a time for that exact reason is not that I think, you know, a podcast can do that, but as each of us do it at the individual level and then each of us do it in our communities and our circles, you know, that is kind of the change that happens. Yeah. Absolutely. And a podcast can start to do it. It's a part of it, doing it. It is doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I one hope piece, so. That's one piece of it. It is one piece at one piece at a time. So speaking of kind of moving your own personal inquiry and interest into sort of moving from that stuck identity place and kind of moving into a richer experience as you came into your own, you know, I'm a person living with MS. I'm also a doctor and kind of, you know, moving to a richer narrative. You were starting the story clinic and then starting the health story collaborative. Tell the listeners a little bit about just kind of broadly what it is, but also maybe just draw out some of the things you've learned or reflections you've gained over over the course of kind of being involved in the Health Story Collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the Health Story Collaborative, I mean, it grew out of my experience just starting to collect stories, and then it became sort of the framework around it when we made it a nonprofit. We, John Adler has been essential. He's the most wonderful collaborator, drawing on his research. But we also, um, I've learned a lot about other research in doing this work around the health benefits of listening to stories, for instance, and of community and uh, being empathically witnessed. So there's a lot of research behind this. So it is, we're small. We have a lot of programming. It's all around basically creating forms for story sharing, typically around illness and healing. But we have a very broad definition of illness as sort of any imbalance in spiritual, psychological, or physical well-being and and healing as moving towards balance. So it fits a lot of things within that framework. We have a live storytelling events where we do these work with people on their stories and then share them. We've also used it to do social change work around like the opioid epidemic, for instance. Um, we have a project connected to that. So my original goal was to sort of, it was a little bit of response to what I feel is broken in healthcare and to try to bring more stories into healthcare. I think one of the learnings I've had is that it's really hard to work within the healthcare system in a way 
I sort of had to step outside of it to get this off the ground just because there's such a risk management framework within healthcare institutions sometimes. And they can be very, well, they aren't always so innovative because there's fear of change or there's fear of litigation. There's fear. There's fear. So it was hard. Except ironically, I'll just say on that point, the more patients feel listened to, the less likely there is to be Right. Malpractice and litigation. So that's the sort of irony of the whole situation. It is so crazy. I mean, absolutely. But so some of the initiatives I've suggested over the years to the hospital, like let's have like a clinic where people can come and share their stories and we'll record them. and And no, just push back, push back. But you think so many patients leave their appointments feeling like nobody listened to me. I think they'd feel so good. I mean, ideally, their doctors in those moments listen to them. But if they don't get that, wouldn't it be nice if they could go to a place in the hospital where they could share their story for the good of others, right? That's giving them a sense of agency, too, to say your story is going to help someone else. But anyway, yeah, so one of my learnings was it can be frustrating within the hospital to get something off the ground, but we're trying to infiltrate back in. But we have a lot. So we do some programming in the hospital. But we also do a lot in the community. When we come back, Annie shares a unique storytelling event that involves doctors and their patients sharing stories with each other and the healing, connection, and insights that emerge. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, Annie Brewster. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. My friends, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this episode marks the final episode of season three of this show. I've learned so much from each of my 18 guests this season, and I'm certain you have too. We kicked off season three with the wisdom of self-compassion from expert Kristen Neff. We learned about the power of listening and attending and caring to someone suffering from palliative care experts like B.J. Miller Rachel Rush, and Barbara Jones. Some losses are sudden, unexpected, and traumatic. This season, we heard from Mindy Corcoran about her own healing in the aftermath of gun violence that ended the life of her son and father. Psychologist Lizzie Cleary shared the shift in her own grief after learning her mother's death was by suicide years after it happened. Cecily Saraski shared the healing communities she and her wife created after her son accidentally ingested a lethal substance. We also heard from trauma therapist and expert Elise Kennedy about the ways these traumatic losses impact us. Widows and widowers joined us too. Jamie Morrison and Melissa Gould each shared what life has been like in the wake of losing their husbands, journeys that brought them both to rely on the tools, and resources they had built over their lives. Widower Wesley Bain shared what it was like to hear his wife's reflections on her terminal illness as a guest on this show last season, shortly before she died. Like we've been doing with today's cast, we've also learned from Alan Cole and Beth Erlander this season about the particular grief that accompanies non-death losses. My very special friend, John Powell, joined me to explore the intersections of race and grief, and our universal need for belonging. Just last episode, my guest Naomi Edelson shared her personal journey of loss and the birth of her professional journey to create safer grief spaces for Black people. My guest and friend Marissa Renee Lee reminded us that grief is love, and researcher and scientist Ashley Consolo helped us begin to understand 
the growing ecological grief we're experiencing around the world. I'll be working over the summer to begin recording both audio and video this season, season four of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I can't wait to bring you more incredible guests and conversations. One of the things that you shared, though, that I thought was really poignant, because I want to think of talk, I'm going to read again from your book about sort of the transforming relationships through stories, but you talked about doctors coming to listen in these storytelling events to their patient stories, and then the doctors telling stories back and sort of that, do you have a particular anecdote or just kind of a lesson learned about what you saw, like the transformative power of that kind of reciprocal storytelling between patient and doctor? I love those events because I think there's there's so much power in that, just not just in the moment, but what it inserts into that relationship that then is carried forward. And, you know, I started early on in our conversation saying something about boundaries and how we're too boundaried. Well, I think boundaries are important, but this is sort of a safe way that we're playing with that boundary a little bit. We're creating a safe space where we are working with the storytellers in advance. So we're not going to have the doctor say something crazy that's going to burden the patient. Nobody ever has written something we've had to cut that would be that way. But that's the fear, right? Is that the doc, you know, that it's going to be making the patient uncomfortable somehow. But it's done in a very sort of uh, careful way. But anyway, so we have a different narrative guide for both patient and provider. They We seek out a patient and provider dyad that are in a therapeutic alliance how, who are both interested in sharing their stories. We work with them each individually. They don't hear each other's stories in advance. And then they, you know, share on at the given event. And it's incredibly powerful to have the patient here and then the doctor, I mean, whoever goes first, they hear each other, then they get a chance to dialogue about what they heard. And it's just really powerful. And so, yeah, some, let's see if there's some anecdotes. One was, um, he's in the book, Dr. David Barron and his patient Tracy, and she was his diabetes patient. And we did that in the context of a diabetes support group at the hospital. So a lot of his other patients were in the audience too, which I think was really meaningful. I mean, the comments we got back from the audience was just, uh, they felt so moved and so privileged to be able to have heard something from their doctor that was a little, like he shared about his childhood and why he decided to pursue medicine and his growing up. And, you know, that was an intimacy that they're not invited into a lot. And then he shared very honestly about some of his struggles, um, not feeling like he was doing right by his patient, even though he was working so hard to control her diabetes. But he also shared honestly that he was frustrated with her at times. And then she shared about how hard her life was. And, and he, they were able to have a conversation after where he could say, God, I learned so much hearing Tracy talk about how hard it was. And I have, you know, I get it more now, you know, so, and, so they really came to they talked about some hard moments where they had, they'd had not like some struggles. It wasn't all shiny object no. and lo- yeah, love fest, but it was transformational. Yeah. And then they put it together and move forward. And, and that was really powerful. So that's one example. It's interesting because, you know, we've done those in hospital settings with, you know, mostly doctors or other providers in the audience. And most people, I mean, it's very moving to everyone there, but there's usually at least one person who's like in a comment will say something about this discomfort of this boundary violation, right? Like it is taboo still and not everyone's comfortable with it. But I feel 100% that it is the right thing to do. And we do it in a very uh, safe way where we are respecting. Some boundaries are important, of course, right? And we're not violating those, but I do think it's just really healing. And that came out of what I said earlier of like this sense that sometimes there's like antagonistic relationship I felt that the system sets up. 
between patient and provider. And so I'm mostly on the patient side here saying patients aren't getting what they want. But I'll also say as a provider, sometimes it's heartbreaking and we're trying so hard. And so I think seeing the human side of the provider is really important too, to try and heal that relationship. Yeah, I think that I appreciate that. I really loved those stories in the book. And also just, I love that sort of human exchange and interchange. I share often about my own grief on this platform and very, when I've been working with individuals, very minimally, I'm very mindful to not burden. But I do think we learn so much in the human stories of other humans, regardless of the kind of role they play in our life as helper or friend or neighbor or whatever. And so I think, yes, boundaries are important and, and, um, and, you know, and my favorite word, everybody knows. Um, And you're not the only one. I, I recently, interviewed BJ Miller, um, you know, palliative care doctor, and he talked about some of the work he's doing that they took outside of hospital systems for that same very reason about connecting from one human to another, thinking about the quality of people's lives, asking the kinds of questions that, frankly, you know, Western modern medicine and the systems aren't equipped to do. I'm going to do my disclaimer that I do every time I talk about the medical system. There's a lot to love about it. And thank goodness for the advances and that we have specialists who know everything there is to know about an elbow when your elbow goes wrong and everything that to know about your eye when something's wrong with your eye. And we are more than our elbow and we are more than our eye. And so I appreciate the way that you've used storytelling as a powerful transformational tool to transform both part, you know, both parts of that dyad. And not just for those people, I think often about all the things I've learned as I've told my own story over and over again and iterated it and listened to so many stories over my career, is it doesn't just shape my own story or how I go on telling my story next. It shapes how I listen to the next person and the next person and the next person. And that's the kind of ripple effect I think we you know, we can't change major systems, but if we are listening differently the next time, that's absolutely. I love that you said powerful. ripple because that sort of you might not know it from our our logo at Health Story Collaborative, but it is supposed to be a ripple. Like we started with, because that is exactly how I think about it. It's like you, the the stone thrown into the water of one person's story, and they just ripple outwards and impact you know yeah, others that yeah. way. Absolutely. Just to share another excerpt from your book, you talked about the transforming relationships through stories and, you know, quoted some lovely thinkers too. But this one passage, you said, story exchange involves a back and forth that changes each of us, teller and listener, not only individually, but also collectively. How our story is received influences what that story means to us and how we will tell it the next time. Our very identity shifts ever so slightly in response to our story being heard by others. Those receiving our story will also be changed as our story becomes a part of their story, and so on. Relationships shift, too. It's an intricate dance forever in motion. When we witness another's vulnerability, we feel safer and are more likely to open up and share. And that just resonated for me. I've had a sustained meditation on holding space and bearing witness as long as before even, which is what got me into the work of social work in the beginning. And um, I just think that's exactly kind of what you're talking about is the the willingness that we have to bear witness to our own pain and heartache and to grapple with it and wrestle with it and get stuck and get unstuck and to do that in safe spaces 
is powerful, not just for us, but also for those who are capable of showing up and holding space and bearing witness, which is hard for us back to the kind of master narrative, cultural narratives, because we are trained sort of writ large, but definitely in medicine to fix. And listening to the story of other has absolutely nothing to do with active fixing. Absolutely. But I do, I do think, you know, collectively what happens, right, is when one person is vulnerable and opens up, it, it gives everyone else permission um, to let their guard down a little. And if we create, like, you know, it, it requires uh, discipline to create those spaces for that, um, you know, in a, in a really deliberate way, like we're making a space for, but if we do that, that is like magic can happen in a room. If you have someone sharing vulnerably and then someone in the audience feels more open and they share something vulnerable and then that ripples out and the whole, like, it just makes everyone feel more at ease. Like, oh, sigh of relief. We're not all supposed to be totally perfect and buttoned up. I have it all together. And, and, you know, back to the communion being one of the, you know, sort of narrative themes that we know is really helpful in terms of improving mental health. Grief, loss, diagnosis, all of these things are very isolating in their very nature because they feel very singular to you. And then we tell stories about, you know, again, you know, this has only happened to me. I'm the only one who feels this way. I'm the only one who experiences this. So the storytelling in its most beautiful spaces, you know, when it's done safely and with vulnerability, starts to break down that sort of falseness of the other Absolutely. And bring bring into more belonging, more community. And the self-judgment too that can come with, you know, I'm weak that I'm feeling this, right? And and then you realize, oh, someone else feels this too. Oh, phew. Exactly. (laughs) It's not just me. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of normalizing the, you know, the myriad of experiences. And again, the complex, rich stories of our lives, everything we're sort of always invited to squash ourselves down into a very thin, narrow description. And I just love the power of storytelling to give us room to breathe and move and integrate, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So as you finished this book, you're continuing in the Health Story Collaborative, especially when I have, you know, providers on the show or people who are kind of doing this work, not just, you know, from their own personal grief and loss, but in the professional world. Is there some next thing or curiosity or topic or you know, on the horizon for you that you're really curious to learn more about or a certain population? Is there something kind of waiting for you? What's next? That's a good question. I mean, I'll definitely continue to do the Health Story Collaborative work. And, you know, we'll continue with our projects as they are with the Healing Story Sessions and also the Opioid Project. But I'm sure that it will evolve. I think this has been a really interesting time professionally just with COVID, right? Because I was doing urgent care and then I've been doing COVID care like straight for the past two years. And so, it, and everything has shifted in the wake of COVID in the hospital, like the clinic I used to work in is no longer there. So in that piece of my life, it's definitely a turning point of like, what next? And there is yeah. an opportunity there. I've always like wanted to find ways more to integrate the storytelling work into my practice. I did work at the Mind-Body Institute at Mass General for a little while. So I'm poking around with, could I actually work there and do like storytelling workshops and actually integrate that with my clinical job more? Maybe. I've also really, I'm very interested in addiction medicine and I'm thinking about getting into that more. My work with the opioid project and delving into that a bit has been, um, has really 
inspired me to want to learn more. And I do think it's a great field where it is about stories and using stories to decrease stigma. And and so that's yeah. something I am thinking about pursuing uh, and definitely yeah. a deep interest of mine. Yeah, that's Oh, that's really exciting. Well, I am definitely going to be keeping track of you and the work that you're doing. And for the listeners, I'm going to drop links to everything in the show notes for today's episode. Annie, thank you so much for spending this time with me on the podcast and for sharing your work and your wisdom and your own personal experiences too. I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Lisa. I've loved our conversation and I will definitely be following your work as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for holding this space along with us during today's conversation with Annie Brewster. You can learn more about her work and her book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, at the link in the show notes for today's episode. I truly want to thank Gail Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show this season and to the team at StudioPod for helping me produce it. I want to thank each and every one of you who listens to this show. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next season, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart. <laughs>